We'll hear argument next to number 96-320, Metro-North Commuter Railroad Company versus Michael Buckley. Uh -huh. Ms. Birnbaum. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. The court this morning is confronted with a ruling from the Second Circuit that is both unprecedented, stands alone, and is contrary to the common law and feel a precedent both before this court and in most of the common law courts of this country. If the Second Circuit's decision is not reversed, it will greatly exacerbate the asbestos litigation crisis we have in the courts and will lead to the unpredictable and expansive unlimited liability that this court was concerned about in the Gottschall case. Tort law is clear. You have to sustain an injury before you can recover from a negligent defendant. Ms. Brumbaugh, may I ask you if you would clarify your position in this case with the one that, the, uh, that is being taken by the defendants in the case this afternoon. That is, they say that there is an injury, that there is a class of people who have been merely exposed to asbestos, and they have an injury, in fact, a concrete, particularized injury, in fact, here and now just by virtue of having been inundated with asbestos. And you're saying, as I take it you just said, they don't have any claim until they suffer an illness. But we can't both be right. Well, I'm not going to argue the Georgine case on the standing issue. There may be different considerations with regard to standing. You're also looking at this issue through the context of FELA, a statute that provides that there must be an injury and has a jurisprudence that goes with it. But it's still much broader. We would say that a person who is merely exposed and has no injury, in this case, the record is clear, he has no clinical evidence even of plural plaques, plural injuries. He has no recognition, no determination by his own physicians even of subcellular changes. The court below relied on the physical impact of the fibers going inside his lungs. Well, first, there is no real evidence of that except a hypothetical given by the expert below. But besides that, the real issue here is subcellular injury, even if it existed has been held over and over again by most common law courts in this context not to be an injury. Well, how do we deal with a physical impact? Does that constitute an injury, even if it's slight? No. I think that, and, and I think if you look at the courts, the common law courts, even a court like Florida, which clearly adopts an impact test by itself, not a zone of danger test, which I think we need to talk about, but this court has adopted a zone of danger test, not an impact test. If you look at those courts that have adopted an impact test in the area of asbestos exposure, toxic exposure, what the courts have done is added more because they are concerned about this unlimited, unpredictable liability. In Florida, where they have just the impact test, the court in the Cox case said, you have to also have a physical injury. But aren't there many jurisdictions that have recognized a claim for medical monitoring, common law claim for medical monitoring for people who have been 
massively exposed but have not yet manifested any illness. There are there are there are a few. And, and how many not, roughly would you say? Over a dozen, I think. A little less, but but there are some. And if you look at most of those cases, they are either in the area where there are a very small number of people, the water cases, where there are just a small number of people who have been exposed to contaminated water. And not the kind of situation here where 21 million people have been substantially exposed to asbestos. 21 million people could come into the court today. May I interrupt with just a question? Let's talk about one of those 21 million people who's been substantially exposed. And say that person's doctor says the exposure is sufficiently serious that I think you ought to check with me every six months to see if anything's developed. Because if it does develop and we catch it early, we'll be better able to treat you. Uh, would that be an injury? No, not under FELA. Even though they'd, they'd have to pay his doctor's bill every six months? That would be a damage, but it wouldn't be an injury. Be, not within the meaning of the statute. Right. But as a matter of ordinary reasoning, would not that be a pecuniary injury that uh, one could at least say gave, gave rise to some kind of claim? I think it's just much more complicated than that. Than well, it's more complicated because there are 21 million people out there. I agree with that. But if you look at just the one is what I'm right. kind of but thinking. The problem is if there are 21 million just asbestos-exposed people, this would right. apply to all toxic substances. We can't count the numbers of other toxic substances. No, but I'm just... I'm just challenging the integrity of the argument that there's no injury there when a person, because of the physical exposure to that, is required to pay a doctor every six months for the next ten years. I would say that under tort law and under the law of FELA, you have to have an injury. It has to either be a physical injury or an emotional distress injury within the boundaries that this court has set. And dollar injury is not enough. Damage. It's damage. It's not injury. If he's but under general, under general tort law, you wouldn't make that argument. Would yes, you? I would, Your Honor. You, you would not. I mean, but your argument seems to be saying that you that there is no uh, injury cognizable in tort which does not involve personal as opposed to economic injury, and that, that you're, you're not arguing that. No, no. But why isn't there then an economic injury, just as Justice Stevens says? If, if, the, if the doctor says the exposure is such that you would be crazy not to have an examination every six months, uh, why, and, and presumably you're not crazy so that you're going to act reasonably and you're going to have the exam, why doesn't the reasonable necessity of expending the money for the examinations every six months constitute an economic injury to you? It, it may be a damage to you, but before you can get to a damage for medical monitoring, for future medical monitoring, the courts, the common law courts, have been very clear. You first have to have an injury. Except for the 12 that you said go the other way. Yes, and that is, that is so. But why should we not accept economic injury? Because if you do that, you will be opening up the courts of this country to the... To okay, but to that's a different... You're, it seems to me you're now saying, and, and I'm not saying it's an illegitimate argument, but you're making a different kind of argument. You're saying not that it would be in the abstract foolish to regard this as an economic injury or economic damage, but if you do, it's simply going to cost the system more than the system can bear, and therefore, not for an analytical reason, but for reasons of the cost of consequences, we shouldn't recognize it. That's the argument you're making well, now. I, 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 that is the second argument. I would go back to the first argument, and except for the small number of cases in the water situation, not an asbestos exposure, where there's been no physical injury, the courts have not jumped in to provide a medical monitoring kind of... Ms. Birnbaum, if, if we just took 
the one-on-one case that Justice Stevens gave, I, there, I really don't follow your argument because something happened to this person. No illness is manifested yet, but something happened to create a greater vulnerability than the population at large. And if we just were looking at these two people and say, who should bear the cost of that something that the medical profession says should be done, we would certainly put it on, would we not, the person who caused the exposure rather than the person who suffered the condition that requires the monitoring. I, 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 I think that the tort law does not does not respond that way, except for these special circumstances, these minority group of cases. Then are you saying that we have a kind of assumption of the risk involved? That the worker who didn't know that he was being exposed and is going to incur this cost if he follows his doctor's advice has to bear that cost? No, we're not saying that. I think it's not an assumption of the risk. If there is an injury, then he can recover all of the damages that arise from that injury, including foreseeable medical expenses in the future. But if we just have this type of damage, and if you, if you call it something else, then you may come up with a different solution, but it is a damage. It has to go on to something. That something would well, be a physical injury. Ms. Birnbaum, in the case just preceding you, we were discussing the product liability law. Certainly, that has evolved often in conscious consideration of which party can best uh, pro- protect against uh, an, an injury. I take it what you're arguing is that transactional costs are a permissible consideration in de- de- deciding what recovery you can have under FELA. Yes, I think it, I think it is, Your Honor, and I think that even more so under FELA, the statute is explicit. You have to have an injury. We're putting the cart before the horse. It talks about physical injuries. It doesn't say physical. If, if you're relying on Section 1 of FELA, 45 U.S. Code, Section 51. Yes, Your Honor. It says a common carrier by railroad while engaging in commerce shall be liable in damages to any person suffering injury while he is employed by such carrier. Now, does that include economic injury or only physical injury? And and what do we look to in precedent to resolve that? I, I think what you look to is the common law. What you look to is your prior field of precedent. What you look to is the language and the intent of Congress. When well, certainly if you look to the common law, an economic injury can be uh, and has often been recognized as the basis for liability in tort. But this is so not... You say this requires physical injury, and how do we know that? Well, I think that the kind of economic damages we're talking about is not this type of economic damage. Economic injury. Don't put it in terms of damages, because the statute says injury. I, I, the statute does say injury, and this court has interpreted that to mean, in some instances, physical injury, emotional distress injury under certain limitations that this court said was important. And there is no case under FELA that has ever held that the type of damage we're talking about here is an injury that was covered by Congress, certainly in 1908. Well, but we have recognized that emotional injury will suffice for recovery if the person meets the zone of danger. Yes, yes. That is exactly right. And this is a case based on emotional injury. Well, it's based on emotional 
injury, but he's not trying to recover medical monitoring for his emotional injury. He's trying to recover medical monitoring based on his potential physical injury in the future. Well, is his theory that if he has uh, regular monitoring, it will alleviate medical monitoring, it will alleviate his emotional concern. That was never argued below, and uh, a jury would be giving him his emotional distress injury, not for any period of time until he had the first checkup. What he's asking is for this injury over the entire period of time over his lifespan, and medical monitoring damages over his lifespan. Ms. Birnbaum, you you said uh, in passing uh, that, that this type of thing certainly wouldn't have been covered in 1908. Uh, when FELA was enacted. Is it your contention that we should not uh, extend the statute beyond what it meant in 1908? No, Your Honor. It is clear that it would not have uh, have been a... There would be no toxic tort kind of litigation. Clear clear but irrelevant. It's not totally irrelevant, but it doesn't matter because today also there would be no uh, recovery under these circumstances in almost every jurisdiction uh, in the United States and under the feel of jurisprudence that we have. What about Potter? I mean, aren't there two or three cases? Yes, Your Honor. Potter, Paoli, Ayers. Potter is uh, interesting. Potter and, and, sounds like an effort to try to limit the uh, but, recovery, but, but allow it in, an, in a case where the uh, uh, exposure is severe, uh, the added risk is severe, and there is good medical evidence that medical tests are useful. But Potter goes even further because it provides the, the risk in the future is to be more probable than not. That's not what we have here. We have a risk that the plaintiff's expert says is 1% greater than the but background. Are, are you, are you, but that's still an effort to create a set of cases where the risk is serious enough such that, given the seriousness of the risk, the level of the exposure, and the medical need for examination, you have a cause of action and can recover. In, a, in the limited situation in Potter of, of four litigants who are exposed to contaminated water, Potter did that. And we would say that the California court in Potter is on the leading edge and is not what most courts in the United States have held. Would you say never or what test? Never. Never a medical monitoring recovery under FELA. I would say never a medical monitoring under FELA unless there has been a physical injury. Ms. Birnbaum, we're talking about FELA as though it was some kind of very restrictive statute, but at least, as I remember in ancient days when I went to law school, it was the most forward-looking, the most they stretched the boundaries of everything. Causation was stretched to the breaking point under FELA, and as now it becomes some kind of a constricted statute? No, I I think it is a broad remedial statute, and it has uh, broadly looked at defenses and causation. But I think this court in Gottschall made it clear that there have to be bright lines, especially in the area of negligent infliction of emotional distress, to prevent the kind of unpredictable and unlimited liability that will occur if the Second Circuit's decision is affirmed. Look what we have here. We have a person who has no injury, who has no serious emotional distress. He is worried and angry. Well, he may have a good right to be worried and angry. But if you... he does, because asbestos is a known carcinogen and the causer of serious respiratory harm. And if one worked for an employer who 
knowingly subjected the employee for three years to massive doses of asbestos without ever a warning that that's what was being dealt with, uh, one would have some concern. Well, I agree, Your Honor. Even a normal reacting employee would be furious. Your Honor, I, there are several things in your statement that really I question, and we'll get back to the massive amounts in a moment of asbestos, but Dr. Selikoff, who is one of the noted scientists in this area who brought this all to the attention of the public, said in his book, Asbestos and Disease, it is undisputed that the overwhelming majority of exposure-only plaintiffs will never develop asbestos-related injuries. It's, it's, the, 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 the science is... Well, clear. should it turn then on the likelihood of the danger of developing the injury if it's substantially likely that the injury, that, that the illness will occur well, in I time? and that it can be alleviated if there is early detection, and that there was indeed significant exposure. I mean, if all those fall into place, is there room under the text of this statute for uh, medical monitoring recovery? I, I would say no, Your Honor. If there is a need for medical monitoring, that is something Congress should be deciding. The legislative branch should decide that. That's there are so many policy implications, besides the fact whether this does any good, besides the fact what the Amakai argued, or whether it's necessary, besides the fact of how do we decide what is massive or substantial, besides the fact that we have no guidelines from the Second Circuit, to open up and make the railroads, the insurers, the HMOs, for anybody who has been exposed to beyond background level, because that's what's really being argued. Why don't we let Congress decide this? Well, because if there's going to be a whole new remedy, isn't this something the legislature should decide based That's on public policy? That's what I suggest, but, but you say a whole new remedy. You, you've conceded that we can create new remedies. I mean, the statute says, uh, who has suffered injury? And, and I presume that suffering injury meant something in 1908, but you say we're not bound by that. We, we, can, we can define today things to be injury that were not injury in 1908. No, I think we can, we can define physical injury. We can define emotional injury. This court did that in Gottschall. I, know. I mean, why do you limit it to those? Once, once you acknowledge that we're not bound to what, whatever Congress thought it was doing in 1908, you're letting this court simply uh, uh, create a whole new tort law. Well, and, I, and you're just arguing, uh, you know, you want us to develop it. What, what do we base this, uh, this new tort law on? Should, should we be guided by the... the you, you say we should be guided by the common law. What does the common law mean? It well, first meant of all, something I, in 1908. I'm not sure what it means now. What does it mean? Well, I think it's what generally the law of the various states and federal courts interpreting state law. I would say it would be at least what the majority of courts majority would say. Of states. I don't. I don't. I'm not making the argument, Your Honor, that. You should do this. I'm arguing just the opposite. You should do this. You recognize that we did take Wilkerson against McCarthy, typical of an era under FILA. And so to, to say that you would have to be urging, if you want to go back to 1908, that this court has a lot of overruling to do with all those cases from a generation ago under FILA. Well, Your Honor, there are those of you on this court that will like to look at 1908 and decide that what was the common law in 1908 should govern. There are those of you who don't believe that you can look at the common law as it has developed. I would suggest to you that the overwhelming common law, all of the common law in 1908, and the overwhelming common law today would require a physical injury before you permit a requirement 
for the kinds of damages we're talking uh, about. How long ago, just, I mean, if on the assumption that you're supposed to look at the various relevant features from a public policy point of view, which maybe you're not, uh, or maybe we are, but on that assumption, uh, uh, how long ago uh, did a, a serious, uh, significant amount of exposure in the workplace to asbestos stop? It's going on probably today in many workplaces. So how, how many of the people, it's going on today, you think? Certainly. So how many it of the, depends on how we define substantial. Well, all right, what I'm thinking, what I'm wondering is, is how many of the people, uh, the workers who are exposed, uh, who need medical exams, are likely to be covered automatically by insurance that would provide for it? I, I don't, I can't. Is there any way to find out something like that? I, I don't, I don't know, Your Honor. Are many of them over 65? Many well, would be, many would not be. Well, don't most states follow the collateral source doctrine that uh, a plaintiff can recover for the cost of a medical exam from the defendant liable, even though the insurance reimburses the plaintiff through a contract? Well, I think that has changed by statute in, 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 in many jurisdictions now, but yes, many But that's what exactly I'm interested in. To what extent are we actually thinking of workers who won't get medical exams uh, because they can't pay for it? And to what extent are we thinking of workers who will have medical exams regardless, uh, but will simply take this money as an extra uh, uh, amount of money that they or their attorneys or whoever would be able to share for other purposes? Uh, there's been a great deal of literature already. And where, where would I look to find out the answer to that question? I think, at least if it's from a public policy point of view, if relevant, it would make a difference as to whether you're paying for a worker's medical exam in reality or whether you're simply adding extra money to the worker's pocket. Well, there is some, yes, there is some literature, and I could, I just don't have it in front of me, but I could let the court know what it is in which they have studied the kinds of cases where workers have been provided money for medical monitoring in which they never went to a doctor and in which they took the money and pocketed the money. And there is some literature on that by discussions and interviews with, with workers. Yeah, with John, part, do we know whether OSHA covers this? Yes, would, provide yes. the, would, would OSHA require medical exams? OSHA could require medical exams. OSHA did not require medical exams here because it's not in the record. Uh, but uh, because the amount of asbestos that was, uh, that was found in, in tests uh, during the period that he was working but not in his workplace uh, just didn't show the proper amount, uh, that, the, that the amount of asbestos was as high uh, as uh, OSHA would require. OSHA has a provision that does cover this, and OSHA does cover railroads in New York. So, Incidentally, were there, uh, if there's a knowing, uh, under OSHA probably doesn't even have to be knowing, uh, suppose it were established that uh, there was uh, asbestos that was known to the employer and the employer deliberately uh, concealed the fact from the workers uh, and ordered them uh, to be uh, working here, knowingly subjecting them to very massive doses. Would that be a, a criminal violation? It, it, I don't know, Your Honor, but I know if in that situation you might have an intentional act, which is not what we're talking about here. We're only talking about a negligence act. And there could be different rules. There are different rules that apply to intentional acts. Intention, in, and it could be... Intentional conduct was not alleged here no, in any other... No, Your Honor. It's just plain negligence. No matter how the uh, uh, plaintiff would argue it, it's outrageous, egregious. This was a stipulation of negligence. The conduct of the defendant was never argued before the court. It was never... The statute doesn't draw any distinction between negligence and willful torts, does it? The, the FILA statute, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a negligence statute. It doesn't draw a distinction between negligence and more and reckless right. or anything else. Right. It's negligence uh, alone. Well, in, in a sense, uh, it, it does define the, the activating factor is, is negligence. 
Yes, Your Honor. Is it not? Negligence is what FILA is all about. The defendant is negligent and the plaintiff is injured. And is a violation of OSHA a negligence, uh, evidence of negligence? It would be evidence of negligence, and but it was not, in, it, this was not even before the court here. There was a stipulation. You, you conceded negligence. Yes. Okay. And do any workers' compensation schemes provide recovery for any of the items of damages that are being sought here? Um, I do, I can't, I don't know the answer to that, but this would not uh, uh, be what we're talking about here under FILA. Uh, I just don't know whether some workers' comp do, statutes do, and some don't. But what if, is if we were to affirm this judgment and the employee got uh, the recovery he seeks, and he then later develops uh, a, a serious disease uh, from the uh, asbestos exposure, uh, could he sue again? Is, is that clear that he could not? We say he could not under the one judgment rule. This is not coming back for another type of injury where some courts have permitted that to happen where there's been an injury of asbestosis and then you come back when you can get cancer. Uh, we would say that the one judgment rule would put him out of court. Well, if the claim initially is for emotional injury and subsequently a claim for uh, actual physical illness, you think uh, that would be barred? I think it would, but if it was not... There's precedent going the other way that I intimately familiar with. If it would not... Think what you're doing here. He would first recover for his anger, not severe emotional distress, which we haven't talked about, which almost every court has required for his anger. Then if he gets pleural plaques or pleural thickening, he may come back again and say it's a pleural disease. Then if he gets asbestosis, he may come back again and say he has a different disease, asbestosis. And then if he gets cancer down the road, he can come back again and say he has cancer. And this is... A lot of two, at least, is a considerable precedent for saying that if you recover for asbestosis and then you get this virulent form of cancer, <clears throat> you haven't split a claim. You have indeed many, separate... Many courts have held that way, Your Honor. So in this particular instance, we have not only the one disease or the two disease rule, we have a totally different type of damages than all of the potential of the personal injury damages. I would suggest to you that the court, the Second Circuit went off wrong on two instances. One, this man is not in the, not a bystander. He doesn't fall into the zone of danger rule. He wasn't in peril of imminent injury. He was not, uh, he was not uh, sustained any severe injury. There is no physical manifestation of his injury. There is no objective evidence that he even sustained an emotional injury. I suppose one might say he was certainly in a zone of danger working in um, asbestos dust drenched air is a zone of danger. You know that some of the people in that group are exposed to grave danger. Then every worker who is anywhere near a toxic substance is in the zone of danger. And clearly, that's not what this court said in Gottschall. What this court said in Gottschall is you have to be in imminent danger of immediate harm. This is a person who has a potential, a mere potential of harm in the future. It is the Second Circuit's opinion is unprecedented. When you look at it in all its pieces, there is not one case in the entire United States, certainly not in 1908 and certainly not today, that has stripped the common law and FILA of all its limitations, of all its restrictions in this way, and opened up the floodgates, opened up the courthouse doors to any worker who has been exposed to any type 
of toxic substance that is above background range and who is worried or angry about what happened to him. I, I, I suspect, and some of the amici have already said uh, in, in the amici briefs, that there have been class actions that have been brought since this decision for non-impaired, exposed workers seeking medical monitoring and this type of emotional distress. Almost every worker will be opening Thank you, Ms. Birnbaum. Thank you, Your Mr. Getsch, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Michael Buckley and the snowmen of Grand Central Terminal are here to ask this Court to adapt the approach and the standard of Gottschall to the problem of toxic exposure in the railroad workplace and thereby fulfill the essential remedial purpose of the FCLA while also addressing the legitimate common law concerns about screening out trivial, fraudulent, and unlimited claims. And here is the concrete, bright-line, scientifically verifiable test to do that. First, three elements of proof. Proof of physical impact by a toxic substance. You cannot have exposure and ingestion without physical impact. But that's not enough. Second, well, how, proof of... How, uh, let's talk about your first point for a minute. I mean, uh, how about the person just walking down the street in a big city? I mean, uh, they're going to be able to show some in ingestion of a toxic substance. I That's right, Your Honor, and this is precisely why the test I'm giving you, the three-part test, will screen out such trivial uh, exposure. But the first obviously doesn't. Exactly, yeah, it, but, but it, it's, three, it's a three-part test. First, physical impact, exposure, ingestion. That's, if you don't have that, you have no claim. But that's not enough. You have to show a, a, an increase in uh, risk of developing a grave toxic disease. Now, if you don't have any in increase in the risk, there's no recovery. But that also is not Why enough. Why a grave toxic disease? I mean, you know, well, uh, uh, all sorts of risks that we go through in life and you pay for them out of your own po pocket. I mean, you know, life is, uh, right. Th this is, is not a bed of roses. I'm walking down the street in New York, or, or worse yet, I'm standing in a crowded subway in New York, and the person next to me coughs. And, and some of the... Uh, 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 some of his cough lands upon me or in the ambient air and I ingest it. So there has been an impact. Your, your test number one That's has right. been met. This person is coughing presumably because he has a cold. Right. And I'm very careful about such things. Let's say I'm elderly and, and getting a cold could be very harmful. Now, is he liable to me for, for, for medical monitoring thereafter? Absolutely not, Your Honor. Why not? Because there has to be a three-part test that will screen out the trivial, the fraudulent, and the unlimited claims. Well, it's not trivial to me. I mean, I, well, I don't okay, want to here's the cold. point. Here's the point, Your Honor. The railroad is asking for a genuineness test, in effect. They say you cannot recover without some common law indicia of genuineness, uh, manifest uh, uh, symptoms, psychiatric testimony, so on. But that's the genuine test that this court rejected well, it's not in the, It's the flu. It's not a cold. It's the flu. The flu can be very serious, very painful. Am I in timing? Mean, every time somebody causes me some inconvenience, do I have a cause of action? No, you are. Absolutely not. And, and that's the standard that, that I'm giving you. What's your third test? Third okay. Okay. The, the two, third test we is... hear the third? Thank you. The third test is uh, competent expert testimony establishing a scientifically verifiable basis for a reasonable fear of a future toxic disease. Now, that expert testimony has... That, that doesn't help my questions at all. I mean, uh, you, know, well, you're, you're, you get coughed on, you're likely to get a cold. Or, or but, no, no, we're talking about fear of future uh, death, right. death by cancer. We're not talking about a cold or the flu, Your Honor. That's the point. Well, what, about, what about pneumonia? 
I mean, you, you can up the ante, you know, from cold to flu to pneumonia. And pneumonia for elderly, uh, elderly Americans, as we call ourselves, can be very, <laughs> can be very harmful. Your, Your Honor, this case is about toxic exposure in the railroad workplace. We're not talking about... Uh, 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 what we're talking about are regulated... Well, I'm in the workplace, and uh, some of my employees come to work with uh, severe colds. And we work closely together. They cough, and we ingest some of the substance that they're coughing. And my doctor tells me, yes, it's very likely that you will develop pneumonia from exposure to this sort of thing. Now, I have a good doctor, reputable it's reasonably likely that that's what's going to happen. Recovery? No, Your Honor. No. It's not a known carcinogen. It's not regulated. The known not... carcinogens are the same. I could spend the whole rest of your time reading you a list of known carcinogens. There's no fruit or vegetable that you can eat that is not going to have at least several molecules of pesticide residue. There is nothing in this room that doesn't contain some elements of known carcinogens. All right? So your first two tests don't help distinguish your case, I think, from tens of thousands of millions of cases affecting every man, woman, and child in the United States. So therefore, the third part of your test must do it. And that's what I want to know how, because I suspect in every instance in which my 50,000 substance list of known carcinogens is concerned, where in fact negligence is at stake, you will find at least one expert who would come in and say, well, negligence is at stake. Why is it negligence? There must be some significant risk. And therefore, I take it that what your third test is going to do is allow every, a claim of negligent infliction of emotional suffering without limitation. No, you're... All right. Now, what I want to know is why isn't that so? Okay. Let's take an example, Your Honor. The snowmen of Grand Central Terminal are leaving their, their job site at the end of the day. They're walking through the terminal. They're covered from head to toe with a, with a white... You're hat. covered from head to toe when you dive into a swimming pool covered with chlorine. Somebody could say, uh, you're covered from head to toe when you sit and have apples, uh, you know, thousands of them around you. Uh, there, there, is, there are tens of thousands of toxic substances, which to some degree or other create small risks of cancer. And, that's and, and what, in your case, you talk about a 5% increase in the risk, 10% increase. You get a 100% increase of being hit by lightning if you go to the top of a hill, all right? The amount of increase is not significant. What's significant is the risk, and even in your case, I can't find out what the risk is. Okay. The very case where you say must be an example of such a claim. The, the third element demands and requires a scientifically verifiable basis for a reasonable fear of future grave. Well, isn't that an element of every claim for negligent infliction of emotional suffering? How else could there be negligence? Look, this, what I'm saying is that this is an FLA case that has to be interpreted in a remedial and humanitarian fashion. What, 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 we just, have... just a minute. Okay. Well, what does that mean to say it has to be interpreted in a remedial and humanitarian okay. fashion? This court used language like that, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, years ago. But recently we've backed off of that to have a more neutral approach. Well, what, what I meant, your, your, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, was that the essential remedial purpose of the FELA is to promote safe operating conditions on the nation's railroads by allowing recovery for, for harms and, and injuries that occur to, to employees. That okay, I, didn't, I, I interrupted you while you are answering Justice Breyer's question. Why don't you return to that? Okay. Justice Breyer, if I recall you, your question, which I may not at, at this point. My question, <laughs> my question is simply how your limitation is any limitation. 
It okay. seems to me that, as you say it, your limitation is no limitation, but rather in any serious negligence case would allow recovery. Uh, and, and my illustration of the how it would function to limit that, that situation, Your Honor, is that a railroad clerk walks by the snowman when they're walking out of the tunnels and later learns that that dust on them that that, that clerk breathes was, in fact, carcinogenic asbestos. That clerk has a reaction goes to a psychiatrist, has severe distress, physically manifests distress. The psychiatrist confirms this is genuine distress. This person uh, has severe emotional distress. No question about it. This test would hold that that clerk cannot recover because there is no scientifically verifiable basis for that clerk to have a reasonable foundation, scientific foundation, to fear the future development of asbestos cancer. But why is a 3% increase in the risk a basis? Because or 5%. That doesn't sound significant. It doesn't sound significant, Justice O'Connor, but it is an enormous increase in risk. The record in this case establishes that that is a 10 to 50 times greater risk than what is considered to be a highly significant risk. Well, as for that, how do we know if it's a lot or a little? I'll tell you right now. Your risk is doubled of being hit by lightning if you walk out the door. It's unlikely. All right? Do people worry about being hit by lightning because they're outside? The risk of lightning is one in two million. If you're on top of a hill, it's probably one in 500,000. That's quadrupling, not just 5%. How do we know the significance of this 5% without knowing what the underlying risks are? Something that I haven't been able to find in the record. His underlying risk of death from cancer, from, from cancer due to asbestos was zero, Your Honor. It's now been increased from one to 5%, which means that if all the snowmen of Grand Central were uh, share that one to five percent increased risk. It means that between two and eight of them are going to be killed. How can how can you be so sure his underlying risk was zero? Maybe he went to school in a classroom that had had asbestos in it. I mean, I don't think you can just assume without proof that the large majority of people in the country have a zero risk. But it, there's no scientific basis for them to fear future asbestos cancer. And that's my point, is that those people shouldn't be able to recover. What do you mean fear? We know that any... Look, my problem, the reason I'm going into this is to suggest how complicated and difficult, as soon as you start using words like increased risk, anything is possible. All these substances have increased risks. And, and, and therefore, what kind of standard are you offering that would, in fact, permit some recovery for emotional distress without saying, in any toxic substance case, any significant toxic substance case, automatically you get emotional distress, injury. So you purported to have some limitations. And as I listened to them, I didn't see how they were going to limit. That's why I asked my question. Okay. All we can rely on, Justice Breyer, is objective scientific evidence to, to confirm the legitimacy of the fear of the future. If there is no basis... But don't you no agree you can always find a reputable doctor who will say, yes, uh, there is a reasonable fear of this uh, danger in the future? Your Honor, I do not believe that is true in the field... Well, certainly that's been my experience over 30-some years. And or, if necessary, an unreputable one. Uh, <laughs> all, all, all we have, Justice O'Connor, is... Bear, which vets expert testimony for, is it reliable, is it trustworthy, is it based on, on scientific method? I mean, that, that is the, that the standard. The, pro the problem is not fake scientists. The problem is that 500,000 people will die of cancer. 
every year. And of course exposure is real, and of course it's a great concern. They're telling the truth. These substances are dangerous. And so are we supposed to say, because of that true fact, not a false fact, that everybody who has some exposure to a substance that significantly increases the chance that he or she will get cancer, probably the entire population of the United States, are we to say that they are to have a cause of action for emotional suffering when they do suffer? Of course they worry about these things. That, I mean, that's the difficult question. It isn't as if it's a fake question. It's a real question. And, and, and Justice Breyer, we're talking about railroad employees who are negligently toxically exposed. That's all we're talking about. We're I know. And so shall each person who is negligently exposed to a serious toxic substance, i.e., vast numbers of people, have causes of action for infliction of emotional suffering. That's the question, not the answer. And therefore, I'm still looking. Your answer could be yes, they all should have it. Or the answer might be no, or it might be somewhere in between. My answer is that the only objective scientific standard that we can rely on is legitimate, verifiable scientific basis. Mr. Guest, can I ask you a question that's been running through my mind, it's been touched on, and that is, supposing the law is, and I don't know whether it is or not, that if your client recovers in this case, that will be the sole recovery for this exposure. There you get one bite at the apple, you can sue early or you can really, really get the, the disease manifest yourself. Do you uh, think all, all of your clients would, uh, would bring this case? You can ponder your answer to that question. We'll resume at 1 o'clock, Mr. Kemp. <laughs> We'll resume argument now in number 96320, Metro North Commuter Railroad versus Buckley. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Counselor, just to refresh your recollection, the question I intended to leave with you, we left in kind of a hurry, was assuming that the rule is that your client may only have one bite at the apple, and as a result of the exposure to asbestos that he's already had, the particular individual, uh, would, he, would he bring the lawsuit in his present posture? Uh, yes, Your Honor, assuming that that's the rule and not the separate disease rule, which I believe Justice Ginsburg referred to, this is not a claim for present physical injury. This is a negligent infliction of emotional distress claim, which by definition means that there is no present physical injury. So when there are physical injuries down the uh, line uh, for asbestosis, lung cancer, etc., those, uh, those physical injuries will, will accrue. Uh, but this yes, and my assumption is that he can only recover for one tort and only get one recovery, even if he has 19 different injuries, if he happens to sue for only one of them. And this is the one he likes to sue for. Do you think he'd sue for this one? Assuming he'd be barred from bringing a further action for other injuries, it's really the same injury. It's just manifested itself with further harms in it. Well, assuming that that, that is the applicable rule, then he would have to make the choice, and, and he could very well choose to wait. All right? But that's not the rule that... The, uh, that the common law is the most... Uh, no, but we're interpreting a statute, and the question, as I understand it, has not been resolved by this court. And it would seem to me a, a permissible disposition of a case like this would be to say, sure, you can bring this suit, but that's it. Well, um, that issue was not raised or discussed below and hasn't been briefed to this... But it seems to me you, are taking, you may well, as counsel for this particular plaintiff, be taking the risk that that's the outcome of this case. 
I don't believe so, Your, Your Honor, because, again, this is not a claim for a present physical injury. It's an emotional distress uh, claim, uh, which by definition does not include. Assuming that you are taking that risk, would your risk be different if you switch to your claim for compensation uh, for, for the cost of medical monitoring? Um, that be on a different footing because well, that would that would be that would be a purely economic injury. Um, to to the extent that it allows the plaintiff to discover the accrual of a physical injury for lung cancer and, and so forth, it allows the, the plaintiff to um, to minimize his his damages by getting the early detection and benefit. Well, no, but isn't your theory that it's an entirely different tort? It, the, the legal injury for, for uh, that is the invasion of a legally protected interest in being free from having to undergo those types of uh, uh, tests and examinations, which are caused solely by the negative. That, that has nothing to do with present physical injury, and it has nothing to do with the emotional consequences of the contact. It's entirely separate, as I understand it. Yeah, yes, Your Honor. It, it is the invasion of that legally protected interest. So then you really could have brought two suits. You could bring just emotional distress, uh, go to the jury on that, and then you could again bring a, a cause of action for medical monitoring. Uh, I don't believe so be for, for this reason, Justice Kennedy. The basis for a medical monitoring claim is proof of exposure, increased risk, and a medically verifiable basis for uh, exams that detect and treat that increased risk of future cancer. Well, those were also the predicate tests for allowing recovery for emotional distress, were they not? Exactly. I see so, the same. So, so that if you qualify for a medical monitoring claim, you also qualify for the fear of future cancer claim by the previous three elements. Are, are you seeking just the reimbursement for those medical expenses? Or are you, you described it that... that What's at issue is his right to be free from having to undergo these tests. So I guess you're seeking both, damage, both the cost of the tests and also damages for having to undergo them? Well, they may be painful. They're, they're certainly inconvenient, at least. The, dam you, the you, damages are for the cost of the tests in the past and, and for, into the future. Just the cost, though. Yes, Your Honor. Well, but but the, injury, the, the injury is the invasion of that legally protected interest to be free of having to undergo those tests well, and bear those costs. Well, then he should get damages for having to undergo the test, shouldn't he? Yes, the, the, not just the cost of the test. It's just well, like saying, you know, if somebody tortures you, you don't, you, you don't just get the cost of the torture instruments. You, okay, you here's, get here's the, the distinction. You can qualify for fear of future cancer, emotional distress, but not qualify for medical monitoring damages for this reason. The, the science, the medicine may say, look, you're gonna, you have this reasonable basis to fear this increased uh, death from cancer, but there's no medical test or procedures that can detect it early enough or treat it early enough to do any good. Well, so are, you, are you telling us that if you can't win on emotional damage, you can't win on uh, monitoring? Uh, that's, you can win on emotional distress for fear of future cancer and not win on medical monitoring because the medical science simply isn't there. There's nothing they can do to detect it and treat it beneficially. Are you saying so, that's true of this case? Oh, no. No, no, no. I'm, but I'm you just have saying, a oh. discrete claim for medical monitoring. Apart from any emotional distress, they, they most, both would accrue at the same time if you had both, so, so you couldn't split those two. But suppose you, you're, you're saying, um, forget about emotional distress that has fought with too many problems, we still have a medical monitoring claim. Yes, yes. If, and you're not suggesting, are you, uh, that, that there is no such claim because there are no tests that can detect not in this case, no. The, the, the record is clear that the medical monitoring costs are indicated uh, and based on, on uh, medical proof. Have you any idea of, of the 
size of the universe that we're talking about in terms of potential plaintiffs who really would not have other sources of paying for medical monitoring, that I'm just in case it's relevant. Uh, the, the ones I was say that they don't have insurance, they're not on Medicare, they're not on Medicaid, uh, and uh, they actually have medically indicated need for medical monitoring tests. Have you, is there, there might be in the literature something that gives us a rough idea of that universe. Uh, the amici brief uh, filed by uh, Mr. Simon might refer to that, Your Honor. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't have that at, at, at my fingertips. Mm -hmm. But I, I do want to make the point that this universe, as you call it, is limited to uh, railroad workers who are, have a legally protected interest under the FELA and well, OSHA. That's not so. You're, you're, you're asking us to interpret the FELA according to the common law. So what you're pri trying to persuade us is that in general, the common law ought to protect these interests. And since the common law in general protects them, they are protected under the FELA. You're not arguing for a peculiar rule for the FELA. Is there any language of the FELA that would make that the rule if it's not the general common law rule? Your Honor, we are not here to argue for the federalization of state tort common law via the FELA. The FELA, the common law is a smorgasbord. I understand Everything that, but you're arguing that this should be the FELA rule only because it is the general common law rule. Isn't that your No, argument? no, no. no. We're, we're st the starting point is Gottschall. Gottschall says that if you want to recover for a negatively inflicted emotional distress under the FELA, you start with the zone of danger test, which is physical impact or threat of physical but that itself was derived from the common law. Yes, and that's our starting point here, Your Honor. Well, it's, but you know, if, if we were to affirm here, it seems to me this is going to be a precedent not just for FELA, but because we say it's based on the common law, the common law generally. No, Your Honor, I strongly disagree with that for this reason. The common law is, it has everything under the sun, every remedial conservative, liberal conservative uh, uh, cases. Simply because this court selects one remedial line of common law cases to assist it to fulfill the remedial and humanitarian purpose well, no, of we, the FELA, it doesn't mean you're endorsing that for we, all the states. Uh, I, for one, don't endorse your remedial and humanitarian comment, which, which you've repeated several times. I don't think the court has followed that track in the last several FELA decisions it's handed down. And I think Gottschall is a rather neutral application of what we conceive to be the common law. And under Gottschall, the plaintiffs in this case recover. They have physical impact. That is the test. Physical impact or threat of, of physical impact. Clearly, they had physical impact. Uh, did, under didn't Gottschall talk about immediate threat of physical impact, or, or am I incorrect in that? It, it, only where there's no physical impact, Your Honor. It's physical in, page 2406 of the Gottschall decision. Physical impact or the uh, immediate risk of physical harm. That, 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 there's two doors. If you have physical impact, you go in that door. If you don't have physical impact, you have to go through the door, which is threat of physical impact or immediate risk of physical harm. That is the Gottschall test. The plaintiffs here satisfy that test. Mr. Gates, let's, let's assume they, they do, at least as a threshold matter. Let, let me ask a question which, in a way, perhaps is somewhat similar to Justice, or gets to the same point that Justice Breyer's would. Uh, we heard from your opposing counsel this morning that when the exposure reaches some measurable level, and I'm not quite sure how it was measured, uh, that OSHA would kick in uh, with a, a, a medical monitoring remedy. Um, I, I want you to, if you will, comment on two things. Is, is it correct that OSHA uh, would not apply to the facts of this case? And if that is so, Shouldn't we take that fact into consideration in deciding how far we ought to go in developing uh, a, an FELA common law uh, when, when, another, when the Congress of the United States in, in another in statute has said 
uh, this degree of exposure simply does not merit a, merit, a, a medical monitoring uh, remedy. The OSHA applies when an employee is exposed over the permissible exposure limit for more than 30 days a year. That is determined by medical by, by air by taking air tests of the mm-hmm. employee while he's actually working and in his general work area. The railroad from 1985 to 1988, when they were exposing the snowmen without warning, training, or protection, didn't take any air tests in violation of OSHA. Therefore, there's no uh, OSHA air test over the permissible exposure limit. Therefore, OSHA doesn't apply to these plaintiffs, and they are not getting OSHA uh, uh, medical surveillance. The point is this. The railroad here saved an enormous amount of money by, by exposing their workers without warning, training, or protection. No, but in any case, your answer is that it is merely for lack of administratively acceptable evidence that OSHA does not cover this case and grant the, the, the remedy that you want, or the, the uh, monitoring remedy that you want. My point is that you can't rely on OSHA to deter this type of conduct. No, I don't. I, I, I want to hear what you say, but was, was my statement a moment ago correct that the only thing that prevents an OSHA remedy from being extended to your clients in this case is the lack of, of a certain administratively necessary or legally necessary uh, uh, evidence under the OSHA statute. The, the, the lack of evidence means that the railroad is not uh, required to provide such medical surveillance. But even if but you your were claim wrong. is that if that the evidence should have been provided and if it had been provided, you would be entitled under OSHA to the monitoring remedy that you seek here. Is that correct? The, the plaintiffs would be entitled under OSHA to OSHA medical surveillance, but that does not cover all the medical monitoring costs that have been established and recommended. So for the tests moment. weren't taken, but you, there's nothing to show what the tests would have uh, shown if well, it had been taken. The, the, the only evidence in, in this uh, case is that the uh, levels were, were massively over the, the OSHA's levels, but there were no air tests taken by the railroad because they didn't want to tell anybody that it was asbestos that they were having their employees work on. Be- before you conclude, may I ask your reaction to one point that was made, that in the universe of asbestos victims, uh, if one were to uh, have a, a line, one would certainly put at the head of the line the people who get this virulent form of cancer, and maybe next you'd go down to the asbestosis victims. And then the, I suppose the last people you would get to are the people who have uh, in, have had uh, exposure but haven't manifested anything. So uh, in, by pressing these claims, aren't you putting at risk people who 20, 30, 40 years from now uh, will develop a dread disease? Not as far as the defendants in this case, which are railroads, are concerned. It's a very narrow class of plaintiffs that, that, that we're addressing here. We're not addressing general common law uh, uh, plaintiffs or defendants. We're simply talking about the, the, the FELA. And what the snowmen are, are asking this court to do is to interpret and imply the FELA in such a way that railroads will not even think about doing this, exposing their workers to a known carcinogen without any warning, training, or protection in order to save money. Thereby, uh, if, if well, well, I would imagine in terms of deterrence, a large number of people will get cancer, will get these diseases, and will have undoubted enormous uh, 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 liability. Well, so in, I mean, in, in, what I'm worried about very much is what Justice Ginsburg pointed out. I mean, to what extent, by allowing a universal cause of action for the medical, will we inf- for the medical testing, will we in fact interfere with the people who are undoubtedly hurt, well, those if, who have the disease? From getting recovery. Is the answer to that zero? Uh, 
I'm sorry, Your Honor. What, is it the case that there is or there isn't a serious practical concern that if people can recover, often extra because they have the tests anyway, for all this testing, that there will be significant interference with recovery by people who do have the disease? Not, I do not believe so in the case of the railroads, especially... Well, if, if you couldn't stop the principle from spreading. Well, I think that this court can and, and, and should make it clear that this is an FLA case based on, on the policies and concerns of the FLA, which the common law does not share. Medical monitoring will enable these individuals to detect the disease early and hopefully beneficially treat it so they don't have to die and bring a, a wrongful death case later on. I mean, it, the whole point of this is to mitigate and, and to reduce society's burden and the railroad's long-term burden for pain damages as a result of its negligent conduct in, uh, in violation of the FLA, in violation of OSHA, uh, in violation of these, these human beings who happen to be railroad workers, legally protected duty to be free from this type of exposure to a known carcinogen. And if the railroads are not held economically accountable under the FLA for this type of conduct, they will have no meaningful economic incentive to avoid it in the future. Indeed, they can save substantial amount of, amounts of money by doing this again. That doesn't really follow, because I, isn't a hypothesis that maybe one out of 100 or one out of 50, that some of these people are going to get cancer, and when they do, they'll have a tremendous recovery. In 20 to 30 to 40 years, Your Honor, when witnesses are dead and gone, documents lost and destroyed, the railroad merged and bankrupt, and the railroad says, okay, you're dying of cancer, now prove it. That's not enough of a deterrent to stop what's happening now. They don't want to be subject to this. I think you've answered the question, Mr. Getsch. The case is submitted. We'll hear arguments.